Uh, good morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew 18 from verses 1 to 14. Let's start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with us as we look at the teaching of your beloved Son. And Father, we're going to read sober warnings from him, and we pray that we may give his words their full weight as, as the words of your Son, and that we might seek to live according to that Spirit, so that his Spirit might be ours, knowing, Father, that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we are none of his. And we pray, Father, for your strength, because we want to be his, both now and forevermore, for his sake. Amen. Well, I thought we'd uh, read Matthew 18 from 1 to 14 because uh, we need to get the, the, the flow of the argument that's going on here. At that time, verse 1, at the same time, the Greek, uh, the Greek means. And what, what time is in view? Well, at the end of chapter 17, the Lord has explained that uh, he is going to die on the cross. And I think he really expected them to sort of be, be sort of struck by that and to be... Uh, deeply uh, impressed by that, but what happened? There was an argument amongst them. They couldn't focus upon him there, which should have been the, the end of all the striving for, for, for advantage over your brother and all division, etc. Anyway, at that same time <clears throat> came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest, notice the present tense, in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever shall receive one such little child in my name, receives me. But whoso shall offend, make to stumble, one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Go unto the world because of offences, for it must needs be that offences come, stumbling blocks, occasions to stumble, but woe to that man by whom the offence, the stumbling block, comes. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, and we need to just notice an ambiguity here in the Greek, it can mean if they make you stumble, or if your hand or your foot cause you to offend, that is, they cause you to make others to stumble. Cut them off and cast them from you. It's better for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How do you think? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? I think the answer to that is no, but we'll come to that later. Uh, and if so be that he find it, he... Truly, uh, truly, I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So then, <clears throat> I've said that at the same time, in the, in the shadow of the cross, there was this argument amongst them who should be the greatest. And the, 
the other records in Mark and Luke bring that out. But there was an argument amongst them about who should be the greatest. It's rather like that just a couple of metres away from the cross of Jesus, there was this petty argument about amongst the soldiers about who gets to, to keep his shoes, who gets to have that really nice jacket that he's got. You know, Right in the, in the shadow of the cross... We can have the most stupid arguments. That, for example, at the breaking of bread, uh, there is an argument about who should get the the bread and wine, and all, all this kind of thing. Well, they came unto Jesus, it says, with their question. Uh, they carefully conducted the argument they'd had about who should be the greatest, according to the other uh, accounts in Mark and Luke. They carefully conducted it out of his earshot. And we can just as well think that all our petty arguments uh, and divisions in church are somehow out of his presence. But of course they are not. The Lord knew, of course, their discussions. Because he asked them, Mark 9 says, what they'd been arguing about on the way. And they won't tell him. But Luke 9, uh, the record in Luke 9, 46, 47, really brings this out clearly. There arose a reasoning, and the Greek is dialogismos, a dialogue. There arose a reasoning, a dialogue amongst them, which of them was greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought, and that is that same word, dialogismos, Jesus, perceiving the dialogue of their heart, called the child. So, in any case, they'd given the game away by asking who's the greatest in the kingdom. I wonder if there was the impression given that actually uh, Peter was the greatest. Because at the end of chapter 17, people had come, outsiders had come to the group and come to Peter and said, does your master pay tribute? Uh, as if Peter was even seen by outsiders as the, uh, the, the sort of the leader of the pack. And there's no doubt that the Lord did have an inner three, Peter, James and John, and that Peter uh, within that does appear to have been the one, shall we say, that the Lord had uh, great hopes for. And I think that they, uh, they realized that and there was this tension because of it. And you notice the present tenses, who is greatest in the kingdom? They had picked up correctly the Lord's teaching about the kingdom as being not only about a future entity to be established on earth in a political form, but insofar as we are under the dominion of God as king, we are his kingdom. If we live by the kingdom principles that the Lord explained in the parables, that's why he says all the time, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Not it will be, but it is like this. And actually he's not talking in those kingdom parables about a political entity on earth. He's talking about life now under the domination of God as king. Now, he... He really answers them pretty tough because he, he uses this uh, idea about who is greatest in the kingdom in verse 3 where he says, unless you uh, be converted and become as little children, you will not enter into the kingdom. As if they're assuming that they are in that kingdom already, that they're in uh, beneath that dominion of God's rulership and kingship. And he says, unless you're converted, you won't even be there. So don't even worry about who's going to be the greatest. Focus upon being like this child and on entering the kingdom. And of course, 
the greatest in the kingdom, the little child, all the way through, we're going to see is Jesus talking about himself, because he is the greatest in the kingdom. So I think his answer is, in terms of Acts 8 verse 12, focus on the things of the kingdom and the things of the name of Jesus. He's saying, look, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom indirectly with absolute spiritual culture? He politely basically says, me. Uh, And he's saying, focus upon being like that little child who wants to just cuddle up to me in my arms uh, and focus upon you entering the kingdom and be converted so that you might be there. Really, when you think about it, this question, who is greatest in the kingdom, really reflected a lack of understanding of the Lord, the, the greatness of the Lord Jesus. So he calls the child to him, and it's the same word used about the calling of the disciples. As if he's saying, look, this child is really one of you, I have called uh, you, and I have called him. Now, it says in a lot of versions in verse 2 that he called the child unto him and set him in the midst of them. And you can get the idea, he sat him down. This is a most unfortunate use of language because the Greek word definitely means to stand up. That is how it is pretty well always translated a number of times in the New Testament. Jesus calls the child and stands him up in the midst of them. In the midst. That implies they're in a close circle. And we're told in the other records that Jesus sat. They sat in a circle. So putting Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, and they all record this, you can play what we have called earlier Bible television. You can really reconstruct the scene. And I would argue that the way that all these little details fit together and don't contradict each other is to me personally a a tremendous proof of inspiration. But this really proves to me that uh, really these were eyewitness accounts that were guided by God in in their write-up. And the the fact there is no contradiction between them, I know people will try to find contradiction, but I'm not naive. uh, And I have looked through the Gospels for, for years and years very closely. And putting them together, I don't find contradiction between the accounts. I find what one would expect of three or four men, the gospel writers, writing an account of what they saw, and yet under divine guidance, so that they don't uh, misremember, the comforter helped them to remember all things, uh, and so that it is all absolutely perfectly without contradiction. That to me is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is true and therefore there is a God, because you know, even if you took three or four of us, and said, now, just to account for what Duncan's talk this morning. Uh, some of you would for sure have misunderstood what I said. Some people would misremember. Some people may have just literally misheard. By the time you get misremembering, mishearing, and misunderstanding of the content, you get three or four people, plus in the passage of time, if it's not, you know, right after the meeting, but, uh, you know, sometime later, what did Duncan say that Sunday morning? you know, you're definitely going to get contradiction, absolutely. Now, what colour sweater was he wearing? You know, what was the, the colour of the background curtain? Yeah, no, you, you, you're going to get contradiction, it's as simple as that. And the fact there are not those contradictions, and yet there is without doubt this evidence of eyewitness, uh, close zoom up on the on the persons and the body, body language of the, the characters. These records are wonderful. 
They really are. And don't fall for this petty, that so-called higher criticism that tries to rip them apart and say, ah, oh, yeah, well, you got this wrong, you got that wrong. This is the, the work of men who have, and women who have no faith, who don't want to believe. The more you want to perceive beauty in the Gospels, the more you will see it. Because it's really there. And believe me, as I say, I, I'm not intellectually naive. I, I'm not one of these people who just wants to see truth there and I blind my eyes to, to the inconvenient uh, uh, untruths in, in a case or whatever. Not at all. That's not how I'm uh, wired as, as a person. As a person, I would be somewhat skeptical uh, rather than uh, uh, positively naive. Uh, that's just how I am. And I, even with that sort of wiring, uh, come to, to the gospel records and I'm just in awe of the way that there is this perfect coincidence and congruence between them. So then, putting Matthew, Mark and Luke together, the Lord is sitting down there in a circle because the child is called into the midst. He calls the little child and the child comes and he stands him in the midst of them. Okay, And that means, of course, the circle had to open a little bit, and we shall talk about that later. And then, putting, as I say, the uh, records together, we're told that the Lord, uh, in Luke 9.47, that the child stands by Jesus. Para, in the Greek hymn. Para, Jesus means next to him, by him. And then in Mark 9.36, we're told that he takes the child into his arms, and the idea is cuddling him. Now, putting all that together, this has the absolute uh, ring of truth and likelihood. The Lord calls a child. The child comes. The, the Lord stands him in the midst, because the kid doesn't want to do that. Well, the kid's shy, right, with all these grown men in a close circle. The Lord stands him there, but the child doesn't want to stand there, and he comes to Jesus. He's standing by Jesus, para Jesus, Luke 9.47, Mark 9.36. He takes him into his arms and, and cuddles him. Now, just imagine the whole thing. There's a group of guys sitting there, a fairly rough bunch of guys, uh, and there's Jesus, who the child loves, or the kids love Jesus. And Jesus says to one of these <clears throat> little kids who's there on looking, watching, hey you, come over here. On one hand, the child wants to come to Jesus who called him, but he doesn't want to come to the circle of men. That's why when the Lord puts him in the middle. Well, he comes and stands by Jesus, and then Jesus cuddles him. Now, is that not so true to our human observation in the body of Christ? that so many people would love to come to Jesus and are attracted to him personally, but they don't want the church. The bunch of guys sitting there in their closed circle. Now, that is exactly the case with so many people. And it's been complained so often that the church is the stumbling block between God and man, or between Jesus and man, rather than the conduit that it should be. And yet, there's a catch-22 here. You, you cannot actually just say, ah, yeah, we'll blow the church. Uh, I, I just come to Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I, I've got no time for the church. There are a lot of people who say that. But the, the big problem with that is that Jesus is identified with his church. And according to his own clear teaching, and, and John's letters absolutely make this plain, 
If you don't love your brother, and if you want nothing to do with your brother, and you want out with your brother, then you want out with Jesus. And this again are different ways, different metaphors, different teaching of the same bottom line. Paul Corinthians talking about the body of Christ, you are all members of that body. And if you say to various parts of the body, I do not need you, I don't need a body, well, what are you? You're just a finger dangled in midair. You're not in the body of Christ, and therefore you have no connection to the head, which is Jesus, because he is his body. Baptism is into the body of Christ, which is him as a person, but it is not only him. He is the church, his body. The whole metaphor speaks of that, that he is his body. You know, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He doesn't say, well, I'm the trunk and, and you're the branches. I am the vine. I'm the whole thing. If you want out with the whole thing, well, you want out with him because he is his body and his body is clearly defined as the church. There's no argument about that. So then, you can't just have Jesus without the church. There's all very well complaining that the church is a stumbling block and it often has been in practice, but that is how God in his, in his wisdom has set the thing up. But there is no such thing as a person connected to Jesus but not to the church. Now, I mean, the form in which you are connected to the wider body, the ecclesia, the wider group, is, I guess is going to vary from person to person. And especially with all the, with the possibilities of internet fellowship, then, you know, that the whole thing is rather a wider in definition than simply saying you must go to a meeting on Sundays. You know, I accept that that is a, a too simplistic view of being a member of the body of Christ. You, you can go to a meeting on Sunday and be psychologically isolated and locked up within yourself, apart from you know all the niceties and talking about the state of the nation and the, and the weather. Uh, you can be so locked up inside yourself that you, know, you might as well not go because it, you know, it is not uh, membership in the body of Christ, if that's all it's about, if it's just a social club. Anyway, the Lord is talking to this closed circle of disciples, really, about this problem. And you see how what he spoke about then, 2,000 years ago in, uh, in Galilee, is so absolutely relevant to us in the 21st century. His point was that they were to receive this child. That's the whole point. Now, the child is set up as representative of himself because he says that uh, if you receive this child, you receive me, and if you receive me, you receive God. If you don't receive this little child, you don't receive me. He's saying, just as I forced you to open your circle, you have got to open your circle to accept this child. You, you, you can't sit there in your closed circle and put off these little ones from coming to you. And when he says you've got to humble yourself and be converted, I mean, a child per se is not humble. But I think the picture was of the child being stood, the child is standing in the midst, and then he comes and stands para Jesus, next to Jesus, and Jesus cuddles him in his arms. And Jesus is sitting down, according to the other records, and therefore the child was sat down, come down to their level. And I think it was in that that he's saying, humble yourselves like that little boy did. 
when he says, well, when we read that he stood the child in the midst, so many times you read of Jesus with the very same word, standing in the midst of the disciples. Luke 24, 36, John 1, 26, 8 verse 9, John 20, verses 19, 26, and so forth. So he's saying that I am amongst you as that shy child. That's, that's me. And this idea of Jesus as a child, I think, remained with them because Peter twice in Acts, in Acts 4, 27 and 30, uses a very odd word when he's talking about Jesus. And he talks about Jesus as God's holy child. Even then, in his heavenly greatness, he, Peter perceived that there was this childlikeness about, about the Lord Jesus. So then, the question was, who is greatest in the kingdom? That had been what they'd been arguing about on the way. And the Lord's answer is to really say that he is the greatest, and you should try to just be like him without thinking about being the greatest, and you should worry about being converted in order to enter the kingdom. Now, the language in verse 3 is very tough, unless you be converted. Truly I say to you, you shall not enter the kingdom. This is very, very strong language. You have got to become or be as, become as little children. So he's saying that there is a process that he expects us to be involved in, engaged in, of self-humbling. That that is the essence of the Christian life. Unless you are converted, but weren't they already converted? If you go back to Matthew 13, <clears throat> verses 15 and 16, Jesus uh, laments how generally Israel have not responded to the word, to, to the preaching of John the Baptist that I suggested, and therefore uh, they have not heard with their ears, understood with their heart, and they have not been converted. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. <clears throat> and he says that that is the basis of conversion. <clears throat> so on one basis, on one level, they have been converted. But now he says, um, you've got to become like children to be converted. And later on he's going to say to, to Peter, Peter, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. That's in Luke, uh, Luke 22. So then, it's a case of there being different levels in conversion. But in one sense, of course, they were converted, according to Matthew 13. And then, in another sense, they had to become as children to be converted. And Peter had to uh, be converted when he finally realized that life is about strengthening your brethren. Totally and absolutely. So there are levels of conversion. And I think an honest look at your own life will, will show you that. And of course the, the key thing is is to perceive that uh, for others and to recognize that about others. That they also in their apparent immaturity are also maybe hopefully on a level and they're going to rise to a higher one. I think we all go through this. I mean Job, Job 1 verse 1, there was a, a man in the land of ours who was perfect before God. God really had a very high opinion of Job to have written that, but that's how Job was initially. And yet at the end he, he says, I heard of you, 
by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, all that theory had to be converted into, into practice. And you see it in Peter's life, it's through the denials that he came uh, by the fire, you know, three times, do you love me, undoing the three uh, denials that he'd made, also by a charcoal fire, and then being given the commission to feed my lambs, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. So then, there must be always this uh, whole process of uh, growth. That's the idea, I think. Now, the Lord says that you've got to humble yourselves, and this was exactly the message of John the Baptist, who they, the disciples, had apparently followed. Because, same word is used in Luke 3 verse 5 in his teaching about the mountains must be brought down so that the glory of the Lord can travel over that road to, to Zion. He was teaching humility, and yet the disciples, it seemed, hadn't really grasped that idea from him. Now, I have said that uh, Jesus is presenting himself as the little child, and he says that uh, you've got to humble yourself and become as that little child that you might be the greatest. I believe that there is a sustained allusion to this whole passage here in Philippians 2. Remember in Philippians 2 there is a hymn of praise uh, to, to Jesus. And the hymn uh, talks about seven progressive stages of self-humiliation in Jesus that sort of came to its, uh, its apex really in even to the death of the cross. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to the death of the cross. And then there are seven uh, stages of exaltation. Unfortunately, that hymn has been misunderstood, of course, by Trinitarians and the like, uh, to, to teach that this is Jesus coming down from heaven, becoming a man, uh, when he used to be God. This is not the case at all. The allusion throughout it is also to Isaiah 53. It is specifically talking about the death of the cross. And it's talking about the mind the mental attitude of Jesus, that this seven-stage progressive self-humiliation in his mind, finally uh, to the death of the cross, and then the, the seven stages of high exaltation. And then he let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's how the whole thing is introduced. So this is talking in Philippians 2 about a state of mind. And yet the Lord is, is saying that you've got to humble yourself Bring yourself down as that child so that you might be lifted up to be the greatest in the kingdom. And that was him. That was him, definitely. Now, how do you humble yourself? You can't take a week off work or just take a few hours out and think, now, I'm just going to focus on self-humbling. It doesn't work like that. There's no button you can press on your, on your head that sort of makes you humble. And yet it's so important. Now Paul speaks to Corinthians 12 verse 1 of how God had humbled him. 1 Peter 5, 6, Peter says that we've got to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. The idea is that God is going to humble you, but you've got to be a willing part of the process. And that's a good thing to try to remember every day, that today... God wants to exalt me in due time, so he's going to try to humble me today, and I've got to humble myself under that mighty hand. It's interesting that the Lord talks about himself as the child, because children 
uh, had a pretty bad deal in the first century society. They were part of the this whole disenfranchised group who didn't really uh, have any identity and meaning, along with women, lepers, sinners, Gentiles in, in Jewish terms. Uh, you couldn't learn anything from a child. You had to teach a child, etc. It's the Lord saying you can learn so much from a child, and you know what, that child is me, it represents me, and in that sense represents God. So, these disciples, this closed group, did not really want to, to have this little child amongst them. Uh, and yet, the Lord is saying that you, you must... Now, <clears throat> verse 5, he goes on to say, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, it's better that a millstone is hung around his neck. Now, to receive them, you do not offend them. If you don't receive them, you offend them or make them stumble. And just... Offence does not mean taking umbrage, it means to make somebody stumble from the path to God's kingdom. And so, to not offend others, you must receive them. Now, this receiving of people was typical of Jesus. Luke 9, 11, Jesus received the crowds and spoke unto them of the kingdom. He didn't just turn around and give them a lecture about the kingdom and say, well, yeah, my time's up now, see you later. He received them. And we are to receive one another even as the Lord received us, Romans 15:7. Receive him who is weak in the faith, Romans 14, verse 1. Now, as I said, they were sitting in a closed circle because the child was invited into the midst. And the Lord is saying, you've got to open up your circle. Now, of course, the disciples are looking at the child thinking, but he's only a kid. He doesn't understand. He's not one of us. He's not matured enough. He's not baptized, uh, and so on and so forth. And the Lord is saying, you must receive the little ones, or else you will offend them. You will make them stumble. And I think it would be fair to say that one of the reasons the Lord Jesus was so hated and crucified in the end was because of his attitude to table fellowship. In the first century, it was incredibly significant with whom you broke your bread, with whom you ate, with whom you sat at table. And the Lord, of course, sat at table and broke his bread with all kinds of sinners, uh, prostitutes, tax collectors, the rest. And people were shocked. How can you do that? And, of course, his explanation is uh, several times recorded in the Gospels. His answer really is... Why do I do this? To help them repent. You know, why does your master eat with uh, tax collectors and, uh, and sinners and, and so forth? Uh, and how does the Lord uh, answer that? And why does he receive sinners? Luke 15 verse 2. How does he answer that? With the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. So I think he's saying in his answer, why do I receive sinners? By eating with them. Why? in order to bring them to repentance. So he doesn't say, I, uh, I only fellowship with people who are up to my standard. If you get to my standard, then you're welcome. He said, look, I'm open. You're welcome to come to me, 
and break bread, fellowship with me, in order to lead you higher. And in fact, he's saying here, if you don't do that, you are making other people stumble. It's very clear here. This is all in, in the same context. If you receive this child, you receive me. But whosoever shall offend shall cause to stumble one of these little ones. In other words, to not receive is to make to stumble. And how many times have we seen this? This is so true to, to observation. That when people are rejected, now nah, you can't break bread, blah, blah, blah. Where are they now? Where are they? You know? Where, 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 where are you tonight? Sorry to quote Bob Dylan, but that, that, that song comes back to me, giving away my age. But uh, it's a very powerful melody there. Uh, where are you tonight? And that's what I think about so many people who were turned away. They have been caused to stumble from their path to God's kingdom. So the challenge comes down to us those who have been in closed table communities, to open the circle. Jesus forced them to open that circle because he called the child and brought the child in, stood him up in the midst of them. And he's saying that your attitude to the little one is your attitude to me. And as I say, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians about the body of Christ, John uh, writing about loving your brother, and if you don't do that, you don't love Jesus, don't love God. Um, they're all saying the same thing, that your attitude to those little ones is your attitude to Jesus. And we must give God's word, as it's recorded here, its due weight. You see, what this is saying is that there shall be people who will not be in God's kingdom. Even though they lived an apparently very good Christian life, because they won't accept the little ones. And because of how they have refused the little ones. And so they don't know Jesus. It's heartbreaking, really, to think about that. But, you know, I, I soberly plead with you, whatever the cost to you, and you're listening to a man who paid a huge cost for my uh, view of receiving little ones. It costs you everything, your family, uh, all that you have known, financial security. That's a cheap price for the kingdom of God and for not causing someone to stumble. Now straight after this, in Mark's record, in Mark 9, starting at 38 up to 42 of Mark 9, uh, I think the Lord gives us an example. He talks uh, straight away uh, to the disciples about someone who was doing miracles in his name, who they forbade because he doesn't follow with us. And those people, that person surely was one of the disciples of John the Baptist. And the Lord is saying, now, here's a classic example for you. Here's a parade example. Receive him. Don't forbid him. And the disciples of John, of course, did have a slightly different doctrinal take, for example, on the Holy Spirit. You see that in Acts 19. Uh, there, there was a, when Paul rebaptized some of the disciples of John the Baptist, that they were lacking in understanding of some things. And they kept themselves very separate from uh, Jesus, and there's times when in the Gospels, John's disciples and the Pharisees come and question with Jesus. So that they were clearly closer to the Jews than they were to the teaching of Jesus. And yet, in the parable earlier in, the, in Matthew about the children in the marketplace, Jesus is talking clearly about the, the disciples of John when he says, 
Uh, some of the children in the marketplace wanted to play funerals, so they played a sad song and people didn't respond. Uh, other children, they sung a happy song because they wanted kids to play weddings with them and the kids still didn't want to play. He's talking about his disciples playing the happy song and the disciples of John playing the sad song, wanting to play funerals. And the Lord is saying, look, we're all teaching the same thing and wisdom is justified of all her children and he includes John's disciples amongst that. So despite a pretty big difference of culture, spiritual culture between them, uh, despite different uh, backgrounds, despite, let's face it, there I say, some differences in teaching, in doctrine, in understanding, the Lord is saying, look, don't forbid that man. Accept him. Look, here you are. He's a little one. Sure, he doesn't get it about everything, but he's a little one. Don't forbid him. And it's the same word used by Peter in Acts 10.47 when he justifies baptizing Gentiles, who were seen also as little ones, as, you know, beyond it really. Uh, who can forbid water? He would have remembered his Lord's words, forbid them not, to the same Greek word. So, unfortunately, the disciples didn't quite get it, because in the next chapter, Matthew 19, verse 14, uh, another group of little children come to them, and the disciples forbid them. And who's right in the Gospels? Well, it's God, but uh, through the, you know, through Matthew and uh, the Gospel writers, they are highlighting their own weakness. They're saying, look guys, how we didn't get it. The Lord told us, took that little boy in the midst of us, he told us we've got to receive him, not forbid him, or else we're going to get condemned. And what happened? Well, a man of providence, we, our obedience was tested, and we were sent a bunch of little kids, and you know what? We forbade them. Now, he goes straight on, Who, whoever will offend one of these little ones, it's better than a millstone were hanged about his neck. And he were cast into the depths of the sea. Now, one of these little ones, I think the interpretation could justly be, be made of that, even just one. If you offend even just one, if you stop just one person getting to the kingdom, it's better that this is done to you. This terrible picture looms before our eyes. Verse 6, one of these little ones which believe in me. That leads me to think that he's not actually talking in the first instance really about accepting literal children. He's saying that this child represents a believer in me who is weak, who doesn't get it just like this, this ch little child doesn't. He warns, it's better for you that a millstone is put around your neck and you're drowned in the sea. The figure of drowning is a man, is, I mean, drowning is not instant. Um, it, it's uh, a man who's struggling to hold his breath, a man whose lungs slowly fill with water, and in the end, he dies. He's bringing before us that terrible process of condemnation. But this is the ab absolute language of Revelation 18.21. The Babylon shall be cast into the sea. Uh, like a great millstone. The Lord is saying, if you don't receive these little ones, if you forbid them, in Mark's language, then you're going to share Babylon's judgment. For all your separation from the world, you are actually being worldly, and you shall be, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 32, as he puts it there, condemned with the world. 
get back into the world. Oh, but Lord, we, we were separate from the world in the truth. No, no, no. You were worldly because you condemned little ones. You forbade them. And, you know, when Peter says, who can forbid water? The whole idea of forbidding people uh, baptism because they are not ready, uh, as is seen, uh, as is thought, you don't know enough, you're too little, uh, or because you're, you're married to the wrong person, or because this or that or the other. I'm sorry, but I'm not condemning those people. I'm simply saying that by behaving like that, we are asking for that condemnation. And whatever the cost, as he goes on to say, even if it's ripping out body parts, you better pay that. Yet the scary thing is, James 3 verse 2, in many things we all offend. Who is there who has not offended someone? Who has not caused someone a stumble? It's no good saying, ah, yeah, I didn't. Yes, James 3 says, you did. We all have done. It's pretty, pretty scary. We really need to pray about this on a personal level. Think about those whom we have offended. And that my major stumble, my prayer is that God will somehow compensate to those people for the damage I have caused them. And I urge you to do the same. And do not think within yourselves that you didn't do it. James 3.2 says, you're lying. You did. Anyone who's had any involvement with any kind of closed table fellowship, as many of us have done, you've done it. Don't say you haven't. By refusing somebody, by rejecting somebody, by giving them nightmares at night. You know people have probably had nightmares because of you. Don't say, oh, but it was the others. No, no, no. No. You can't blame it on others. If you're part of a community that says you cannot break bread because of this, that, or the other, you are offending people. And take it seriously and stop saying, oh, well, it wasn't me. Oh, yeah, well, it was a difficult case. No, 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 no. We have to face up to our bad behavior. And it's as simple as that. And hopefully, you know, God has led us to this higher level of conversion, like the disciples, because they, they didn't accept the children, even when Jesus told them how important it was. They still, Matthew 19, they still forbid the children to come. So he says, uh, verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses. And I think he's talking about the... Uh, the Jewish cosmos, the Jewish world. And in Matthew 23, when he reels off all that list of condemnation for the Jewish world, he basically says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, just as he says here, woe to the world because of offenses. And I think he's saying that the Jewish system was going to be destroyed exactly because they had offended others, because they had been a stumbling block for others on the way to God's kingdom. But that was a system that was taken out in AD 70, and yet he goes on to say, yeah, but a system is made up of people, but woe to the man, to the individual, who causes that, uh, that offense. Verse 8, therefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, now as I mentioned earlier, uh, this has a, an ambiguity in its meaning. It can mean if your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, then chuck them away. Or it can mean if your hand or your foot cause you to stumble others, cause you to stumble, that is, to be a stumbling for others, then throw them away. And I think that the ambiguity is intentional. Because if you, if your hand or your foot or your eye 
it calls you to make others to stumble, then you are making yourself stumble out of the way to the kingdom. Because if you shall uh, make others stumble, then you will not be there. So he says, cut them off. And I think he's parodying the orthodox Jewish idea of cutting off synagogue members in order to preserve the rest of the community. <laughs> that the nonsense is heard a lot uh, in a lot of closed table communities of Christians. Uh, that we've got to get rid of Johnny because otherwise, you know, one bad apple uh, spreads to the rest, which is, of course, nonsense. Not that I'm a farmer particularly, but uh, I saw apples don't spread their, their bruisedness to others. They get bruised by being bashed by other apples. But that's just to think about. Uh, and what he's saying is that... If, if you are doing this, if you are cutting other members of the body off, then you're actually cutting yourself off. That's the point. Now, the whole language here, cut them off and cast them from you, this is absolutely the language of condemnation. Because to cut off is the language, is the same Greek word used for to hew down, to cut down. If you're making notes, Matthew 3.10, Matthew 7.19, Luke 13.9, Romans 11.22, it's a metaphor. Cutting off the branch and throwing it away is the metaphor and the language of condemnation of the last day. And likewise, cast it from you. This is the word used so many times about casting into condemnation, casting into outer darkness. If you look at my notes here, you can see the references. Matthew 3.10, 5, 13, 25, 29, well, bingo, no. uh, 7, 19. Uh, this is the language of, of condemnation at the last day. And the Lord is saying, look, recognize that you have condemned, uh, sorry, that you have caused people to stumble, and condemn those parts of your life that have done that. That's, I think, what he's saying. And this is what makes sense of James 3, 2, that we have all made others stumble. Well, then we should be condemned. Okay, but you can repent, like the disciples. Don't forbid these people. Don't forbid the little ones. And they go in Matthew 19, and they do. Again, despite all this warning, go and forbid them. But there is forgiveness uh, for anything, and that includes making others stumble. And we have all done this, and we can repent of it. And what we have to do, though, is to condemn ourselves for it, to say, yes, my eye, for example, my uh, fear of what others thought of me, of how they would look upon me, uh, led me to, do, to, to reject a little one. Okay, I shouldn't have done that. I should be condemned. So that is, I think, the idea. Cast it from you. Throw it away into, into Gehenna. It's better, he says, to enter into life uh, limping or maimed than than to be condemned. Now, I don't think that necessarily means, although the English translations make it sound like this, I don't think it necessarily means that uh, you're going to enter into the kingdom uh, limping and maimed and with just one eye. It could mean that. But there's another way to read it, and that is that it's better to enter into the kingdom uh, limping or maimed, that is in this brief life, having only had one eye, in this brief life, hobbling around maimed or whatever. It's better to have been like that in this life and then to enter the kingdom. 
Now, the blind, the lame, and the maimed, that is those without some, some body part, uh, you read about these, this group of people three times in the Old Testament, Leviticus 21.18, Deuteronomy 15.21, Second Samuel 5 verse 8. These were the people who were not acceptable for service in God's tabernacle or to come uh, into the temple. So I think the Lord is saying, he could be saying, that it's better to not be uh, involved in, in, in priestly service under the old covenant in order to avoid offending little ones. I think he's saying to the disciples, you guys can't be priests under the old covenant because if you do, you're going to offend little ones. And he says, if your eye offends you, verse 9. Now, I don't think he's talking in this context about sexual lust. That is not the, uh, that is not the context at all. The context is of offending others and being willing to pay any price to pay, do the most awful thing to yourself uh, in order that you do not cause someone else to stumble. He uh, is using the most powerful language, really, that, that he can. Now, putting it together then, he, he talks about your eye, your hand, and your foot. Where do you find this, those three things together? Anywhere else in the Bible? Eye, hand, and foot. Well, there's two places, and they're connected, where you do find them in the Old Testament. An eye for an eye, a hand for a hand, and a foot for a foot. Exodus 21, 24, Deuteronomy 19, 21. Now, what's the significance? What's the context? The context is of a pregnant woman with a little one inside her whom you have hurt by beating her up. If you beat a pregnant woman who's got a little one inside her, then it's an eye for an eye, a hand for a hand, and a foot for a foot. Your foot for that kid's foot, and so on and so forth. Now you can see the, the, the point of the illusion that we therefore are going to uh, damage little ones uh, if we beat the, the mother. You could take it as far as the Lord's saying that, you know, you can damage people even before they come to spiritual birth so that when they are born spiritually, they are handicapped and lame in a spiritual sense. So then, this is what we are doing. The equivalent under the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant's idea of beating a pregnant woman so that you damage a child inside her, the Lord is saying, that's what you're doing. You're beating up a pregnant woman. Oh, no, I wouldn't do something like that. Yes, you are. Oh, yeah, 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 you are. That's what the Lord is saying. And this illusion, I think, would have been picked up immediately by the Jewish minds of the first century who heard this. He's saying, that's what you're doing as soon as you say to... Uh, a little one, you can come here. I will not receive you. I will not accept you. I forbid you. And as he goes on to say, if you despise one of these little ones, that's what you're doing. If you say that you, you can't break bread or you can't be at this table or whatever, or I forbid water to you, you're despising them. You're up yourself. You have a, a, a superior opinion of yourself. 
But in 1 Corinthians 11.22, I think that Paul alludes here when he warns that by having your own exclusive attitude to the breaking of bread, which is the context there in 1 Corinthians 11.22, he says, you despise, you despise other brethren and you despise the church of Christ. That's exactly the problem with Corinth, the super brethren who thought that uh, we are somehow superior. Now, the Lord uses the idea of despising elsewhere in his teaching uh, as the, the counterpoint, as the opposite to loving. You either love someone or, or you despise them. He uses despising as the opposite for love. Now, this is all fairly challenging, very challenging. You may say, oh, I don't despise anyone. I'm quite a humble sort of person. Oh, no, no, I, I, I wouldn't despise people. But, you know, if you don't love people, if you don't accept them, and if you don't receive them at your table, you are. You're despising them. And he warns, you know, those little ones, he says, their angels always behold the face of the Father in heaven. He's clearly alluding to the idea of guardian angels, and he's saying that those uh, people, those little ones, they have their angelic representative in the court of heaven. In other words, he's putting it in really Jewish terms, he's saying that, you know, every little situation, every micro-situation on this earth, every situation in church life, in your personal, interpersonal relationships with others, you know what, it's all played out up there in heaven. They've all got their angelic representatives who are right in the very face of God, before the face of God. And what you've done, by saying no to someone, is reflected there in heaven. And I, I labour this point because the Lord's very clear, and Mark's record is even uses more verses to, to stress this, we're talking about condemnation here. And it's, it's my duty to, to warn you of this, because for many, many years I, I was unaware of this. Uh, and uh, just carried on serving God, thinking that I was doing the right thing by rejecting others. And actually, no. Thank God he opened my eyes. Uh, stop blaming others by saying, yeah, well, I don't really agree with it, but, you know, what would I do? I wouldn't have a church to go to. Why <laughs> about that? You've got a church to belong to, and that's, that's God's and the true church of Jesus. You cannot, you cannot be part of anything that is involved with not receiving people, not breaking bread with people, having a closed table and a closed group. It's a, a matter of your salvation, according to what the Lord has said here. And he defines in great detail the, the drowning, how you're going to want to come up for air and you're not going to be able to do it, all because of just having an I-don't-care attitude, or, ah, they're just kids, we don't want them. I despise them, no, no, they're, they're not in the truth, they're not this, they're not that, they're not up to, to your moral or intellectual or doctrinal standard. Like the disciples of John the Baptist. I plead with you, I really do. Whenever I, I raise this issue with, with people who do belong to closed table communities, they sort of, yeah, they say, oh yeah, I agree with you. Uh, but, but, you know, I personally yeah, agree with you, but you see, you know, it's the others. And yet, <laughs> I'm at the point of saying, so you won't break bread with uh, your brethren in Christ because some other bloke says that you can't give me his uh, name and his email. Who is this person? And of course, oh, 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 oh. all these excuses. Oh, oh, well, you know, my, 
Ah, oh, my, my wife uh, is, uh, thinks a bit differently. Yeah, boo hoo. You do not do this evil to the, the little children of Jesus because your wife or your kids or your parents or your church or all this kind of garbage. You know, this like people who worked in Auschwitz and the, 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 the Nazi death camp standing up in the Nuremberg trials in the 1940s and saying, oh, but, but you see. Well, there's no but you see about it. That behavior is not acceptable. It's as simple as that. And there's no but you see. Otherwise, you might as well believe in a personal devil and say, I'm a good bloke. The fault in this world is all someone else's, but it wouldn't be mine. And this is the whole cutting point of Christianity, that it is your fault. And you and I, we stand in danger of condemnation and we must live the life of love and of grace and receive others as God and Jesus accepted and received you. And then he goes on to say, verse 11, the Son of Man, uh, for the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost, that his mission, he as the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes for the one into the mountains, that this is to be our pattern. And of course the question is, well, does a shepherd leave 99 and go for one? No shepherd does that. 1% loss is quite okay, it's quite normal. But the Lord is saying, <clears throat> he did. That is the, the uh, element of unreality in this parable that, that flags up the, uh, the point, which is this, that we are to, to go for the one at whatever loss. Be it pulling your own eye out. Be it cutting off your hand. Be it leaving your 99 sheep. You must do it. Because that is what Jesus did for you. And if he had not done that, if he'd have thought, oh, well, I've got a group of believers, I don't worry about calling Duncan, I don't worry about working with that guy, he's difficult, uh, blah, 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 then none of us would be here. And who, who, who should stand? And I, I wonder also if the Lord has in mind here the idea of shepherding, as if he's saying, yes, uh, you under the old covenant cannot be shepherds. You can't be in a community that is doing this kind of thing. Just leave that and go and shepherd my sheep. And go into the mountains, very clear uh, a picture there of the, uh, <clears throat> in the Old Testament of uh, Israel being scattered sheep, lost on the mountains because of bad shepherds. The Lord is saying to forget the system and, and go uh, and be part of the new Israel where you secular men and women are the, are the shepherds uh, and where we're going to go for, for the one who is lost and we're going to receive the little ones because we are all, we are all little ones. How little we understand, how little a portion is heard often, as Job says. We are all morally weak. We are all terribly weak in so many ways. And the Lord has gone out into our lives and has received us and has even granted us not only forgiveness, you know what, he gave us repentance, according to how Peter talks in Acts 3 and 4, that he has given Israel repentance, he's given us repentance, he's led our hearts to him, he's opened, absolutely open to us. And whatever the cost, be it ripping our body parts, be it leaving your 99 in the wilderness, we are to respond.